You know, if I was to attend a Christian support group, it would probably be Pharisee Anonymous, where I'd come in that circle there, and I said, Hi, my name's Dave. I'm a recovering Pharisee. Now, for those of you who don't know what a Pharisee is, a Pharisee, they were the religious leaders back in the time, and even before Jesus, where they were very legalistic, where they did everything according to the law. And their um, faith was not based upon their heart or a relationship with God or the desire to obey God because they loved God. Their Their whole faith was based upon, I obey the rules, and therefore, you know, I'm a pretty good person. And when I think about that, and I think about myself and why I would call myself a recovering Pharisee, is this whole thing about insecurity. And behind that is, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And so if I'm not good enough before God, then I've got to be doing these things in order to prove to God that I am good enough. Now, some of you here today might be coming here with the same attitude. Well, you just feel that you're not good enough, that you don't measure up. And we don't know how that came to be. It could have been maybe it was you weren't affirmed by your parents or something happened to you when you were growing up. But... um, you know, just as a note here, side note, you know, I'm just making this number up on the top of my head. But, if you know, if you're between, you're 25 and older, this whole thing about blaming our parents for whatever happened in our life, you know, that boat left the dock already, okay? We can't go on through our entire life saying, well, I'm like this because my parents did this. Okay, yes, some parents aren't perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm sure Michael, if he ever gets up maybe 10 years from now, and he could tell you, well, my dad did this or he didn't do that. But when you're 25, Michael, that boat sailed. You can't blame me anymore, you know. And so part of it, we have to take responsibility for, you know, our shortcomings. And for me, the struggle is I'm not good enough. And pastors struggle with that today. You know, some of you might think, well, pastors don't struggle with that. Well, we do. You know, the hardest part of this job, and I've told you before, isn't the people. You know, it's not the complaining. It's not all that. Because I enjoy sitting down with people. It's not the administrative reports, which, you know, are hard for me. It's not remembering all of the details that I have to do or the meetings or all of that. The hardest part of this job is what uh, my ability to do this job is tied to the way I live my life. And that's hard. That's hard because sometimes I struggle. And there are times when I say, God, you've just called the wrong person. What were you thinking when you called me into the ministry? But then I have to rely on, okay, God, you're a sovereign God. There's a reason you called me, who struggle sometimes, who have bouts of doubt, you know, who struggle with, am I good enough, into the ministry. And so maybe, at least this morning, you could learn from me. To say, okay, at least you're not the only one who struggles with, I'm not good enough. And that's what Paul was um, dealing with in the uh, church in Colossae. And so if you have your Bibles or your iPod or your iPhones or your iPads, uh, will you turn with me to Colossians chapter 2? And we're going to start with verse 8 because we don't have time to go through the entire um, chapter. But Paul starts by saying, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elements of uh, spiritual forces 
of this world rather than on Christ. Once again, I shared that last time. Well, what was happening in the church of Colossae? Well, they, uh, they embraced the fact that salvation came through Christ, that Christ died for, you know, their sins. And if they believed that, then, you know, they were saved. But also they were bringing in some other things and intermingling that with their faith. One of that was Jewish traditions, where they said, you know what? Yes, you have to be saved through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But in order for you to continue on in your salvation, you have to follow the Jewish laws. Meaning if you were a Gentile male, then you would have to be circumcised. You'd have to obey the um, all of the dietary laws and all of that. And this is what Paul was addressing. But there was also worldly philosophy that was creeping in to the church too. And like I said, one of the things I see creeping into the church today is this whole thing about God's love. Now, God is the ultimate when it comes to love. But what we're hearing now, especially in some churches, is that, you know, God's love, you know, wins. That no matter what happens, his love for you will supersede the fact that um, you don't need him as a savior. Meaning, if you don't accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that's okay because in the end, God is love and he'll forgive you and you go to heaven. And we see that philosophy coming into the church and I do not see that supported by the Bible. Yes, I believe that God loves us tremendously but that's why he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us on the cross so that we might have life through Jesus Christ not on our own merit and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Because that's what Paul was struggling with too. It was just these worldly um, philosophies that were creeping into the church. And then he said in verse number 9 and 10, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is ahead of over every power and authority. Once again, one of the philosophies that were brought in, that Jesus wasn't truly God. That God the Father was God, and the spiritual was good. But remember last week I said they believed that the material was evil. That means if Jesus was material, meaning that Jesus was you know, fully God, but he was also man, that part of him was evil. Therefore, Jesus could not be God. And so what they believed that God, you know, the, the main deity, would take some of his power and just parcel it out to certain people. Meaning that they didn't have the whole measure of God. They just had just a part of God. The part that God would let them have. And what Paul is saying, no, Jesus Christ is not a created being. Jesus Christ wasn't just a person where God just gave him part of his power. That Jesus Christ was God and in Jesus Christ the fullness of God was in him. He was fully God. He wasn't a created being. But also, he said that through um, Christ, you have been brought to fullness. If you look at some other translation, translations, it says you were made complete. And we know that um, Adam and Eve were created complete. They were created to um, relate to God without sin. They were perfect. And then what happened? They sinned. And then they fell into a state of incompleteness. But through Christ's death on the cross, we were now made whole again. And if you take a look at made whole again... The um, verb there is present, meaning it's ongoing, meaning that we are made whole completely forever, 
forever. So once we came to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, you are fully complete in the eyes of God. That you do not have to do all these other things in order to gain his approval. You don't have to have all of these other things in order to secure your salvation. You don't have to do these works. He said you are, you know, complete. Verse um, number 11, it says, In him, <coughs> excuse me, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Now, circumcision was an Old Testament ritual that started with a covenant that God made with Abraham. Well, God said, you know, Abraham, I am going to make you the father of many nations. You will be fruitful, and I will, and I will give you land that both you and your descendants will dwell, you know, in, you know, when you uh, lived here on earth. And so God made this promise to Abraham. But Abraham um, a part of the deal was that all males were to be circumcised. And this circumcision was a sign that you were, that you were a part of God's family and that you were honoring God's promise. And so what Paul is saying here is that now that Jesus Christ came, you know, you, you don't have to be physically circumcised. It says you are circumcised with, uh, with, Without human hands, meaning that when Christ died on the cross for us and when we accepted his gift, we were automatically considered circumcised and we are part of the family of God. Okay, so it's no longer based upon works. It's just based upon uh, faith. And the problem was back then, even back then and at the time of Paul, the Jews thought just because I was circumcised that I am automatically in the family of God. And Paul said, that's not true. He said, um, who's more righteous? The, the one who is circumcised, that who doesn't follow the law of God, or the, the person who was circum, uncircumcised and did obey the law of God. And what Paul was saying here is not about circumcisions. It's not about the law. It's about the heart. That a lot of people thought that, hey, just because I'm Jewish, okay, that earned me the right to be God's, a part of God's family. And what Paul was saying, no, that's not true. If you were to be truly a Jew, that meant that your heart had to be right with God. You weren't automatically born into it. And it's the same thing with us today. Just because we were born into a Christian family does not automatically make us part of the family of God. Just because we come to church and we do, we say all the right things and we do all the right things, that doesn't automatically make us a part of the family of God. What makes us a part of the family of God? It's that heart issue that we have towards God, that we understand that, yes, God, you are the creator. Yes, I'm, you know, I've messed up. Yes, you know, I've sinned in my life, but I'm trusting you. I want to obey you. I want to be transformed. I want you to be the Lord of my life, and I want to follow after you. That's the sign of a, a true believer, not just because you were born into, um, let's say, a Christian family. And he also goes on with another um, illustration in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, baptism, once again, is symbolic. Okay, one of the things, does baptism save you? 
you know, no. We do not believe that baptism, you know, saves a person. However, we do know that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized because, number one, our Lord commanded that. But number two, it's a public display of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Meaning, when Jesus, you know, when they baptized, they baptized, the word baptized just means to dip. And so when you go under the water, that represented your death to your old self. That represented, okay, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to turn from the way that I used to live my life and all of that. My old self, it's dead. It doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. It meant that we were acknowledging that we were dying to our old self. That all the values that we had before we were Christian, those things are dead. We're not going to follow those you know, anymore. With God's help, we're not going to follow those anymore. And when we come out of the water, what does that represent? It represents our new life in Jesus Christ. Not a perfect life, because we know that we're still going to make mistakes. But it represents that we are a new creature. That we are under new management. That before we did what we wanted to do, now when we come out of the water, that represents what? That we are going to do our best with the Holy Spirit's help to do what God wants to do in our lives. And not what we want. That our dreams are no longer our dreams. That our dreams are, God, what dreams do you have for me? God, what plans do you have for me? God, where do you want me to go? God, where do you want me to work? You know, though that, it represents that, that we are under new management. But it also says in verse number um, 13, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, now once again, uncircumcision just is a, a way of saying that you are not a part of the family of God. It said, God made you alive. He forgave us all our sins. Now this, to me, is the most, um, uh, when you talk about belief or we talk about practice or we talk about the gift that God has given us, the one that gives me the most hope. That yes, I struggle with, I'm not good enough. I see my fault. But I also see that God has forgiven me all of my sins. And it says, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away and nailing it to the cross. It's kind of like a credit card statement. I know for me sometimes, what happens is, you know, I try to do the best to manage my finances. But, you know, there are some times when I know that ends aren't going to meet, and I have to pay these big purchases. Sometimes something happens with a car, something happens with a house, and I don't have that money in savings, and so I have to use a credit card. And so, you know, you put it on the credit card, and you try to pay it down, and every month you get that statement but it's so great when you see that statement and it says zero, zero, zero on it. That there's no balance. But you know, when you take a look at your balance, your spiritual balance, it says zero, 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 zero on it. That Christ had died, on the, Christ's death on the cross paid for all of our sins. And that's what it says right here. It said, he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Yeah, the wages of sin is death. So what was our indebtedness? Well, we sinned, and what was the consequence? Well, death, spiritual death. And so we knew that. But God loved us so much that he canceled that debt. 
We are no longer indebted. And it also says that that debt stood against us and condemned us. One of the, I guess, feelings I have when you don't feel that you're good enough is that you feel that people are looking at you and maybe condemning you or judging you. I don't know if you feel that way. But when I feel, get in this place where there's that insecurity, everything I do that I see as a mistake, I'm always thinking, okay, what's that person thinking? What are they thinking about me? Are they judging me? Are they condemning me? And what does this say right here? It's, it's really bad when you think, oh my gosh, God is condemning me because I'm supposed to be a Christian. But I'm not acting like this. Why am I still struggling with such and such? But the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Yes, we will continue to sin. One of the verses I love the most is when Paul talks about, he goes, you know, the very things that the Apostle Paul knew he should be doing, he didn't do. And then the things that he knew that he shouldn't be doing, those are the things that he was doing. And he, he came to the conclusion that, yes, you know, he, he as a new creature wanted to follow God. But his flesh was weak and he, made, he still made mistakes. And that was just sin. That there is still sin. We still have a sin nature inside each one of us. It's forgiven. It's forgiven. But we still have it. But there is no condemnation. And it said he has taken it away, nailing, to a, nailing it to the cross. <clears throat> and verse number 15 said, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Who did he make a public dis- uh, spectacle of? Satan. Satan is our ultimate accuser. Satan is the one who's trying to get in our head and accusing us of making all of these mistakes. But what did Jesus Christ do on the cross? He disarmed Satan. Because Satan's biggest weapon was fear. And fear of what? Fear of eternal separation from God. Or fear of eternal or spiritual death. Now when Jesus Christ died on the cross, well, he canceled that. He triumphed over Satan. Satan's biggest weapon that he had over us to make us feel afraid, he disarmed Satan. Satan cannot accuse us and saying, okay, well you messed up. You're going to spend eternity away from God. Why? Because Jesus Christ died for us. And pretty much he made a public, public a spectacle of them. And so we see one thing about God's forgiveness in our life. Last week we learned that our salvation is total. That there, you know, when we come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right then and there our salvation is um, taken care of totally. There's nothing more that we have to do. And today we're going to learn that God's forgiveness is total. God's forgiveness is total. There's nothing that you could do that is outside the forgiveness of God. And then, once again, but then there are so many times when we understand that, where we have been freed from that to live a life walking with God in the Spirit, but Satan wants to drag us back into um, a a faith that's um, based upon works and slavery. And this is what Paul says. He says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat and drink or in regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or the Sabbath day. He said, These are a shadow of things that were to come, 
The reality, however, is found in Christ. And what Paul is saying is that, hey guys, Jesus came to free us from those things. Why are you going back and being coming enslaved to, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do this. And why do we do this? Why do we do this? We do this today. It's called a works-based salvation. And part of it is somehow we don't trust God's salvation is total in our lives. We don't trust in God's forgiveness in our lives. And so what we have to do is we have to say, I have to do all of these extra things to make sure that God, at least I feel, that God forgives us. And this is what Paul is saying. He said, don't do that. He goes, you are freed. Um, And what he's saying, these things were just a shadow of things to come. When you take a look at Passover, we don't have to celebrate Passover anymore. Because what was Passover? Passover was when the time where the angel of death passed over um, the Israelites, right? When we had going back to the Ten Commandments, all they had to do, the Jews had to do is put what? Blood on the posts of the door. And every house that had the Lamb's blood that was posted on the door, the angel of death passed over that house. Well, Jesus is the um, reality when it comes to death passing over. Because of what he did on the cross for us, death has passed over us. Where, the, you know, when they did that in the Ten Commandments back in Exodus, that was just a shadow of the ultimate who was Jesus Christ. And that through Jesus Christ, death ultimately, you know, passed over us. And then verse number 18, he said, Do not... Let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person does, goes into great deal about what they have seen, and they have puffed up with idle notions by the unspiritual mind. You know, back then, in that region, they were known for worshiping angels. Now, we know that angels exist, but the Bible never tells us to worship angels. We are not to worship angels. You know, angels are created beings. The only person that we are to worship is God. We are not to worship angels. But back then, they, you know, they were worshiping angels. But once again, people were telling them, this is what you have to do. Because we are so steeped in tradition. You know what my Bible is right now? It's my iPhone. When I go to hospital visits, what do I take? I take my iPad with me. And... But it was really funny when people first, you know, looked at me and they go, well, don't you carry a Bible? I used to, it's right here. That's not a Bible. I go, what do you mean it's not a Bible? A Bible's a book. It's got to have pages in it. True, that is, a, <laughs> that is a Bible, okay? But I said, my iPhone has 23 versions of Scripture. And what my iPhone says is the exact same thing that your Bible says. Okay, and so there's nothing wrong with holding a carrying a regular Bible because I bring that too. Because sometimes it's easier for me to flip, you know, and I'll sometimes I'll write in it. But you know, you could do that on your iPad too. I take notes on that. But once again, we are so steeped in tradition. You know, when it comes to worship, I remember growing up, and when we moved from an organ to a piano when I was a kid, you know, we thought there was going to be a split in the church. You can't worship with a piano. You have to worship with an organ. Oh my goodness, when we brought in an acoustic guitar, I thought everyone was going to leave the church. You know, but oh, you can't you worship with that. But what, you know, when I got older and I started learning about some of the hymns that we were singing, 
I was saying, did you know that this certain hymn was sung to a tune of a bar, bar song? I go, what? And he says, back then, they wanted to um, have people learn about God, and a lot of them didn't read. And so what they did is they did it through song. They put um, theology into a song so you would remember it. But then, what tunes did everybody know? You know, 99 bottles of beer on the wall, 99 bottles of beer. And so what they do is you take theology and you put it to the tune of 99 bottles of beer on the wall. Why? Because everybody knows it. And that's where they learn it. And so, but we get, oh, this is a sacred hymn. But back then, people were complaining about it and say, how could you use this tune? They sing it in bars. But we don't know that. And we complain about that. We complain when we're not singing the bar um, tune hymns. You know? And, and so that's what was going on. You know, in Galatians 5.1, the Apostle Paul says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you... Why... As though you still belong into the world, do you submit to its rules? Paul said, Jesus Christ freed you from that. And if you've ever tried to follow Christ on your own strength, it's not going to work. Following rules is not going to get you closer to Christ. And we're going to talk about that later. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Look, you've been freed from that. Why are you going back to that? Because in verse 16, it says, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And this is what they were still doing. These dietary laws. They're saying, yes, I believe in Jesus, but you can't eat bacon. And these dentists going, I like bacon. What's wrong with bacon? No, they said I could eat bacon. Aren't we not under the law? No, you can't eat bacon. Well, how about lobster? Nope, can't eat lobster. Shrimp? Nope, you can't eat shrimp. You know, and so tonkatsu, no, no, no tonkatsu. And, and so all of these things, the Gentiles are like confused, like what's going on here? Because Paul was telling them, look, you've been saved by Christ, not by these rules. And the Jewish people were coming in and they were trying to intimidate them and say, no, it's not good enough. You've got to follow these rules, these dietary rules. And Paul is saying, no. Once again, these rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teaching. It says, Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with a self-imposed worship. Because when you take a look at the uh, Jewish dietary laws, they do make sense. They are healthy. But it says, They're false humility and the harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They lack any value of restraining sensual indulgences, the things that we want to participate in, the things that we used, the values that we used to live. These rules don't have any power in trying to um, stop you from doing those things. So the question is, how do we deal with sin? Well, number one, you could do it one way, is just let it beat you up. You could say, I'm no good. Man, I keep making this mistake. No, God must hate me. You know, I'm just no good to him. I'm not good enough. That's one way you could, you know, deal with it. Another way you could deal with it is try to do it on your own power. You know, try to use your willpower to deal with some of the things that we struggle with. You know, I've tried that. That doesn't work. All that does is get you discouraged and makes you tired. 
or you could um, not care about it. Because the Bible does tell us that, you know, if we continue to disobey God, um, we will have a seared conscience. If we continue to um, grieve the Holy Spirit, there will be a point where that um, activity no longer bothers us. And where it gets scary is where we could even get to the point where we justify that in our life. Have you done that? You know, I've done that before. Well, you do something and it just horrifies you that you do it, but then you go, okay, God, that was one time. But we keep on doing it and doing it and doing it, and once again, then we get a seared conscience. Then after we get a seared conscience, what we do is all of a sudden, we could justify that action. And that's where it gets dangerous. That's when we're getting ready to um, face God's discipline. Not out of God's anger, but God disciplines those that he loves. Or we could be like the Pharisees who didn't even recognize, oh, I don't sin. You know, Co might sin. I don't sin. You know, Mako might sin, but not me. I don't sin. Oh, you could deal with it that way. But the best ways to deal with that is, you know, sin is to deal with it God's way. And how do we deal with God's way? And this is the way, this is where we're going to conclude here. Number one is confess our sins to God. 1 John 1 9. We know that if we confess our sins before God, what's he going to do? He's going to forgive us. He's going to forgive us every single time. He's going to forgive us. Now, didn't I say that God's forgiveness is in us is, uh, with us is total? Yes. But when we sin against God or when you sin against a person, that becomes a fracture in your relationship, right? Whether it's your spouse or your children or whatnot, you know, if you, you, you sin against somebody else, there's going to be a fracture in your relationship until the person who, you know, commits the sin says, you know what, you know, I, I'm sorry. Um, and that's the way it is with God. We acknowledge that, yes, God, I made a mistake. And God says he'll forgive us. The next thing is, what do we confess our sins to others? And this is why the community is so important. You know, a lot of times we really don't feel forgiveness where we know that God forgives us up here, but it's only until we confess our sins to the community and then the community comes around us and say, you know what, hey, we love you anyway. We know you're not perfect. We know that you're just like us. You know, and they said, confess your sins and you will be healed. And I think that's, you know, psychologically, physically. And finally, it says, make sure your relationship with God or see, make your relationship with God a priority. In Galatians 5.16, it says, Walk by the Spirit, you will not satisfy the desires of your flesh. You know, when we walk with God, dealing with sin, is, it's easy. Because it's the Holy Spirit doing the work. When we try to do it ourselves, you know, we can't stand against the devil by ourselves. The Bible says that we face a war on three, uh, three battlefronts. We, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the battlefronts that we faced every single day that are waging war against us. The world, our flesh, and the devil. And you try to stand up against those three by yourself. It just can't happen. It's not going to happen. We need the power, transforming power of the Holy Spirit to do this. And so once again, for those of us who don't feel that you're good enough. Paul says, look, God's forgiveness is total. 
Last week, we learned that your salvation is complete. You don't need anything else. There is nothing more that you could do to make God, you, make God love you any more than he does. And there's nothing that you could do to make God love you any less than he does. You are more than enough. You are complete because of Jesus Christ. So we don't have to say, I'm not good enough. Because in God's eyes, he says, you're complete. You're good enough. Stop trying to work so hard. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that your son died on the cross for each one of us. And that through his death, Father, that our salvation is complete. And through his death, our forgiveness is complete. And that we don't have to have this attitude of um, Jesus plus. Jesus plus, I have to do this. Jesus plus, I have to do that. But Father, ultimately you're looking at our hearts and you want a relationship with us. And there might be some of you here right now who have never, ever made that commitment to Jesus Christ. Well, you know that or this, you know, you believe that there's a God out there, but you're not sure if that God accepts you. You're not sure if that God loves you. And you might feel that you aren't good enough. But right now, I'm going to give you the opportunity to take that step of faith, to believe in what Scripture says about God making us complete. That if you believe in Jesus Christ, and accept him as your Lord and Savior, and turn from your ways and decide to follow him, you will be saved. And so if that's you right now, would you just please say this prayer with me? Dear God, I know that I'm not perfect. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, and there seems to be just a hole or yearning in my life that nothing I've tried could, confil- could fulfill that. And I believe that Jesus Christ is God who died on the cross for my sins. And I accept his death as a gift from you for my salvation. And I turn from the way I used to live And I want to dedicate the rest of my life to follow you. And if you prayed that prayer, please talk to me or one of the other pastors afterwards. Because we'd like to, not number one, welcome you into the family. But also um, to guide you and direct you on this wonderful life that God has in plan for you. But also there might be some of you here right now who struggle with not being good enough. And so I'd like to pray for you right now. Father, there are people in this room right now who struggle just like I do about not feeling good enough. That somehow we just don't measure up to you. And Father, we ask for forgiveness for that. Because that just shows our lack of faith in the totality of the salvation that you provided for us. It just shows our lack of faith in the totality of the forgiveness, Father, that you've provided for each one of us. 
And what we're saying is the blood that you shed on, shed on the cross is not good enough. It might be good enough for some people, but it's not good enough for me. And so, Father, may your Holy Spirit transform their hearts and transform their minds as they leave this place to let them know that they are not incomplete, that they have been made complete through your Son, Jesus Christ. And that there's nothing they could do to make you love them, make you love them more, and there's nothing they could do to make you love them less. And may they leave this place with just the hope and the assurance that they are 100% now and forevermore complete in your sight. In your son's name we pray. Amen.